We finished our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. I hope it's encouraged you to seek the Lord in prayer and enhanced your prayer life. I know it has for me. We saw last week that at the end of the Lord's instruction on prayer, He gives this analogy, this parable, if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts to his children and earthly fathers are fallen and sinful, but they know how to give good gifts, how much more will a perfect heavenly father know how to give good gifts? And Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then this next story comes, and it's connected, of course. It's connected. And yet, if you're familiar with the next story, it's one of these occasions where Jesus casts out a demon, but he gives us some additional information about demons, about how they leave and they go through waterless places, And they can't find a place to rest. And then they could come back to the original person that they had been cast out of. And the tendency is to be overly fascinated with demonology. And then you would miss the entire point of the passage. You'd miss the entire point of the passage. So my aim... This morning is to help you understand what is going on in this scene. And by looking at how other people respond to Jesus, we have an opportunity to see our own hearts. We have an opportunity to see our own hearts. Remember, these people in the Bible don't know what we know. They don't know they're dealing with the Son of God. They don't know God in human flesh is in their presence. And I was telling First Service, it's like that show, Undercover Boss. Can you raise your hand if you've seen the show, Undercover Boss? Oh, I'm not the only pagan who watches TV. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Undercover Boss. So the CEO of the company puts on a disguise and goes through human resources like he's been hired to work at the company so he can hear what the employees are saying about the company and working conditions and the boss. And so here we have humanity on display talking to Jesus not knowing he's the boss and their true heart coming out. And we need to see this because we like to say the right things and do the right things And be very religious. But our hearts are never going to change if we don't know what's really going on inside there. And sometimes, let's be honest, all the time, it's easier to see sin in other people than in ourselves. And so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that all these stories in the Old Testament are given to us as an example. They're given to us as an example. God providentially and sovereignly arranged these things to happen in the life of Israel, first and foremost, for his interaction with those people at that time, 
and also to pave the way for Messiah to come. But God is always doing way more than we understand at any given moment. And part of what he was doing in Israel's history was knowing that we would need examples recorded for us. And so he sovereignly arranged these circumstances in Israel's history for our benefit. And likewise, we look at the New Testament and we see that the way people are responding to Jesus teach us something about ourselves. And it's easier to see where we make mistakes in responding to Jesus when other people are doing it. All right? So it's going to take humility this morning to look at the Scripture and go, Oh, I'm not like that, am I? Hmm. Yeah, I am like that. And that is the beginning of our relationship being restored with God, is when we say, yeah, I, I am like that. That is me. And forgive me, God, and teach me not to be that way. So this is not a story about demons. This is a story about Jesus doing a miracle and different groups of people responding to that miracle in different ways. Many were amazed and became his followers only to see more miracles and be amazed and entertained. Many were amazed and convicted that this man is from God and I need to listen to him. And eventually became children of God through faith in Christ. But many saw the miracles and since Jesus didn't affirm what they already believed about themselves and the world, needed a way to explain away those miracles. Needed a way to deny his authority. Needed a way to deny his authority so that they wouldn't have to listen to his rebuke and his correction. And this is one of those examples. And so this is the thought pattern that I want you to kind of key in on. This is, this is human nature 101 when relating to God. All of us in our sin nature believe that we know the truth and we know what is good. That we evaluate the world correctly. We don't naturally stop and go, maybe I'm misperceiving things. Maybe I don't have the whole picture. Maybe I'm wrong. That is just not our natural tendency. Step two then is, since we know what is true and what is good, then by my standard of what is true and what is good, I must be right and I must be good. That's our natural tendency. Even people who walk around going, oh, I'm this horrible person... If you kind of dig past the rhetoric, you find out they don't really believe that about themselves. There's two sides to the pride coin. The, the arrogant, I'm always right, and then the self-pity side of the pride coin. It says, oh, poor me. And they're both prideful. Number three, then, 
along comes God, and He reveals to us what is true and what is good, and it doesn't align with our evaluation. So now we have a dilemma. And psychologists call it cognitive dissonance. There's your cognitive thinking dissonance. I can't get these to reconcile. Every time you read God's Word or, or come and hear a sermon, there should be a certain amount of cognitive dissonance. A dilemma. Wait, this is truth, but it's telling me things that I don't think that are true about myself. So I have a choice to make. Do I reinterpret the Scriptures until it reads the way that makes me comfortable? When a brother or sister in Christ comes to me and says, I think I see sin in your life, we have a dilemma. Or, I think you're misjudging your circumstances. And you have a, a choice to make, a dilemma. Am, am I right and they're wrong? Am I misinformed and, and they have it right? Is everybody ganging up on me? Are they seeing something that I don't see? We're faced with these dilemmas all the time. But when God is the one who's revealing to us, the answer is never, he must be wrong on this one. And yet, that is exactly the heart of man. That is the heart of sin. That is the root heart of sin. That I am sitting in judgment of God. I have the final word. I have the final say. I have veto power. It's my life. It's my life. Now, here we see in the pages of Scripture, Jesus doing some amazing miracles. And they keep using this word, we translate amazed. But the word in the Greek is kind of literally this like being outside of your own mind. Like we would say, it blew my mind. You know, I see the young people doing that, just My mind exploded. I can't wrap my mind around this. You know, I don't have a category for this. I've never seen anything like this and I have no explanation for it. That kind of amazement. I don't know how to respond to this. I'm dumbfounded. That would be a a good translation. Dumbfounded. Like, I'm speechless. And so whatever it is that Jesus did when he casted out this demon, it wasn't like anything these people had ever seen. And let me assure you, they had seen all kinds of demon deliverance. There were Jewish exorcists that day, and they probably charged a lot of money. And they had their ritual and certain ways they would do it. And I'm sure there was this kind who did it this way and this kind who did it this way. And Jesus steps in and he does it in a way no one has ever seen before because with a word, thank you, I misfired. (laughs) With a word, the, the demon's gone immediately. Immediately. And they're amazed, they're, they're astounded. And so now, you're faced with this dilemma. This guy obviously is different. This guy has authority. This guy has power. 
And he doesn't agree with our entire religious system. He doesn't agree with the religious leaders of the day. In fact, he's rebuking them. He's calling them out for their hypocrisy. And he's not pulling any punches. On the contrary, he's hanging out with the lowlifes, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the people who know they're not good. And he's demonstrating compassion and mercy towards them. This is causing massive cognitive dissonance for people. So something's got to give. Either we need to change our view and align it to his, or we need somehow to discredit his authority. Yet he's doing these amazing things. So let's find out how they solve the dilemma. It starts with this amazing demonstration. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was the type of demon that doesn't speak through people. But not only does this demon not speak through people, it was causing the person that the demon inhabited to not be able to speak. So everybody knew this man had a demon, and everybody knew that the demon was causing him to be mute. You can't fake this. Oh, sure, you can fake muteness for a little while. But nobody would fake not being able to talk for years and years. It's implied in the story because the crowd was so amazed that nobody thought this was some kind of parlor trick. Nobody was saying, oh, that's one of Jesus' disciples and he planted him in the crowd. Like when Jesus healed the paralytic that was lowered through the roof or the boy who was born blind and now was in his adult years. When Jesus healed, he healed people that everybody knew had a legitimate illness. And when he was done healing them, everybody knew they were legitimately healed. Fully healed. That's why they were amazed and astonished. These are true, supernatural miracles. And he cast the demon out and the mute man spoke and the crowds were beside themselves. Now, what should your response be after you're amazed? Well, first, you should be happy for this man. And yet, time and time again, we see groups of people at these scenes not caring about the compassion and the wonderful healing that has just taken place, but we hear things like, well, he shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. Or, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her hang out with him. Or, let's not be amazed that he just healed a paralytic who's been paralyzed his whole life and was able to get up and walk, but let's all get caught up And the fact that he also told them your sins are forgiven. (gasps) You can't say that. Only God can say that. Right. You're absolutely right. And only God can heal a paralytic in this way. Connect the dots, people.
But instead of this kind of response, we get an appalling accusation. Utterly appalling accusation. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This is a name for Satan. We see it first uttered in the Old Testament. Uh, It's a reference to Baal, right? The false god. Beelzebul. It's loosely translated into English, Lord of the Flies. Do you have to read that book in the seventh grade? Where's the young people in here? Are, you, are they still having you read Lord of the Flies? No. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> and you should. Great book. Great book that warns us about fallen human nature. But this is an appalling accusation to say that the Son of God is working miracles by the power of the devil. In fact, it's so appalling that in Mark... And in Matthew, this is referred to as the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. You're like, I thought all sins could be forgiven. Yes, you're right. All sins can be forgiven. There is no sinner that is too wretched for God to forgive. Whatever is in your past, whatever is in your heart, God knows it better than even you know it. And... He can turn your sins that are crimson red as white as snow. This is the beautiful message of the gospel. But the way that he saves us is through the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin and righteousness. And through the Holy Spirit, you're regenerated. You're given a new heart, a new life. You're reborn. You're born again. And then the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you and changes you from the inside out. So when the Holy Spirit comes and is convicting people of sin and righteousness and doing this amazing work of casting out this demon and setting this man free... And people say, oh, that's not God, that's Satan. Do you see why that's the unpardonable sin? You you have to say, that's God. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit is testifying to you and you say, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's Satan, you're never going to be saved. That's why it's the unpardonable sin. Because that is the linchpin of salvation. That the Holy Spirit illuminate your heart and regenerate you and give you the faith to believe. So this is an appalling accusation. This is the explanation given by those who hated Jesus, but at the same time couldn't deny that he was doing miracles. This is how they solved the dilemma. This is how they made the cognitive dissonance go away. Okay, we admit he's powerful. We admit he can do things no one else can do. But he's wrong about calling me a sinner and a hypocrite. Therefore, I need an explanation for how he's able to do these miracles. Oh, I know. 
Satan's giving him the power to do this. Especially for the religious leaders of the day who are like, we're God's people. We're his prophets. We're his shepherds. We're his leaders. This guy says he's from God, and he's clearly not from God because he doesn't recognize what's obvious to all of us, that we are the people God loves the most. Instead of saying, wait, maybe this guy sees something we don't. Look at his power. Look at his authority. Look at his compassion. Look at his love. Maybe we ought to listen to him. Nope, they found their out. He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Others in the crowd, and we'll get to this one next week, make an arrogant stipulation. So we have an amazing demonstration, an appalling accusation, and now an arrogant stipulation. Look, any stipulation you make on God is arrogant, people. We don't make stipulations on God. He makes stipulations on us. He makes the law. He commands us. He makes the demands. But others in the crowd, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven, as if casting a demon out of a man isn't enough, or healing a paralytic, or bringing a dead child back to life. All of these things Jesus has done publicly to this point. They want a sign I just did a sign. We want a sign from heaven. Now, what would that be? We don't know. But it's not that one, that one, that one, or that one. We'll let you know when you do the right sign. How presumptuous, how arrogant. And really, you get the impression that what? They're never going to get a good enough sign. Doubters are always going to doubt. If you're a cynic, we see atheists in our day, what would it take for you to believe? Well, if God came down right now and did some amazing miracle right in front of me, how about creation? Well, no, that doesn't count. That created itself. Only a great fool would believe that something so intricately designed would create itself. And you you go down through the list. How about if he died and came back to life? Oh, that was a hoax. How about evidence helps inform our faith, but I believe that evidence isn't what changes the heart. That's why I'm a presuppositionalist, if we want to use fancy theological terms. Your presuppositions are the things that you presuppose that you believe beforehand. Before any evidence is laid out in front of you, we all have presuppositions. And so we presuppose because the Bible has revealed to us that there is none that seek God, no, not one, no matter how much evidence you give them. Not that evidence is bad, but don't think that bringing out an airtight case to people is going to change their heart. God changes the heart. That's why he tells us to pray that your heavenly Father would love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him.
So Jesus now speaks. God will speak now. And he's going to give us an accurate estimation. His, his view of what is going on is the accurate view, right? It is the truth. It's not, they have an argument, he has an argument. Let's weigh them and see who wins. This is God speaking. He has the final word. Even when the final word doesn't make sense to us, even when the final word doesn't agree with our view of the world, Right? It's like telling people, you could not believe in gravity, but I wouldn't jump off that building if I were you. Truth is outside of us. It's over us. We submit to truth. And here's what Jesus says. He knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. He knew their heart. Remember, Jesus, fully God, fully man, He's omniscient as God in his humanity, his omniscience somewhat veiled. I don't know exactly in what way and how to articulate that, and I'm always very careful there, but when we're talking about the hypostatic union, how God is fully, Jesus is fully God and fully man, we have to like walk carefully and talk carefully. So in his omniscience, he knows people's hearts. And even though we're not God, you can sometimes see what's going on in somebody's heart even better than they can. Yet, I warn you to be extremely careful about judging another person's heart. We are not God in the sense that we know exactly what's going on in the human heart. Yes, sometimes... Based on people's words and their actions, you get a clue to as what is going on in their heart. And all of us have mixed motives. So someone could be saying, I'm doing this because I love you. And that could be true. At the same time, you realize, yeah, but you're also doing this to make yourself look good. And even as Christians, our behavior has mixed motives. Paul said... I don't even judge my own motives. I will wait until the final day when I stand before God, not at the judgment seat of the great white throne, because we know in Christ we're already justified, but Jesus said we will stand before God in another judgment seat called the Bema seat, and all of our works will be judged by God, and he'll let us know if they were done with the right motives or not. And we will find out that much of what we did for God, we were really doing for ourselves. And we will weep, and Revelation says God will wipe away every tear. But we'll have even more reason to praise Him for His grace. Every last ounce of vestige of legalism will be cleaned out of our hearts. I know it was all God, but I did do that really nice thing for that person. Well, that was really for you. (laughs) You know. It's wonderful to know that in heaven, even our motives will be made pure. Everyone will be doing the right thing for the right reason. We won't have to second guess anyone. 
This will bring God much glory. So Jesus knew their thoughts, though. And he tells them this, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. This makes perfect sense. If Satan is trying to lead people away from God, and he does this through deception and through the world system and through false teaching, but sometimes he does this directly through demonic possession then why would Satan empower someone to undo what he's been working so hard to do? That makes no sense. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So Jesus counters their claims with sound logic. And then he takes it personally and puts the ball back in their court. And he says... And if it were the case that by Beelzebul I was casting out demons, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Remember, there are plenty of these exorcists going around. And now they're backed into a corner. If they're good at casting out demons, then he would say, by your own argument, Satan must be helping you. If you're lousy at casting out demons, you couldn't say, God is helping me. Because that would be blasphemous. Certainly, if God wanted to cast out a demon, he could. So, they're on the horns of a dilemma now. He did that judo move. He took their own argument and turned it back on them. So they, your own sons who try to cast out demons, will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's making a claim to divinity. If, if I can do this, and do something that only God can do, and something that can only be attributed to God, then God is in your presence. The finger of God. I love this saying. It's the third time it's used in Scripture. If you're like me, you're thinking, well, Ten Commandments. Finger of God. Always when I was little, pictured God like, you know, a hand coming out of nowhere and scratching into the tablets. But that's the second time it's used in Scripture. The first time the saying is used in Scripture is when Moses goes to Pharaoh and does some miracles in front of Pharaoh to authenticate his, that his message is from God. And Pharaoh's magicians duplicate some of the miracles until finally Moses does one that they can't do. And they say, the magicians say to Pharaoh, maybe we should listen to this guy. He does miracles by the finger of God. And then he does ten more. Right? The plagues. And Pharaoh just continues to harden his heart 
against God. In the same way we see people in the crowd here hardening their heart against Jesus. And ultimately, he's going to do the greatest miracle of all and raise himself. And there will still be people who reject him. There's a connection here between the miracle of God's and the authority of God's word. If the finger of God miracles authenticating that Moses' message is from God. And you have the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments authenticating that Moses is the prophet of God. And the tablets are destroyed and Moses gets a new set of tablets by the finger of God. Because God's authority cannot be thwarted or destroyed. So Jesus invoking this finger of God imagery, they would understand what he's talking about. He's making a claim to divinity. And now he's going to make an astounding argument. Very astonishing argument here. And he says this, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Here's what he's saying. Satan is the strong man in this parable. Satan is the strong man in this parable. When Satan possesses someone, either literally by demonic possession or figuratively by convincing the world that he is right, convincing us that the world system is the correct system, either way we're talking about satanic, demonic influence. He's a strong man, and that's his house. And what's it going to take to get the strong man out of his house? Somebody stronger. Who's stronger than Satan? Only one, God. See, this is a, a claim to divinity. Look, when you guys try to cast out demons, when I cast them out, they're out. And they stay out. And he continues with the argument and he says, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept out and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And I warned you at the beginning of the sermon, don't get all caught up in demonology here. You're going to miss the point. The point is, is he's rebuking the religious leaders of the day who attempt to cast out demons through legalism and traditionalism and who knows what other methods. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, the demon is cast out and doesn't return because somebody stronger is in the house now. Amen? Amen. 
Because the one living inside me is more powerful than the one living in the world. All legalism and moralism does is clean up someone's act for a little while until their flesh decides what other people think of me doesn't matter so much anymore. And then the floodgates burst open because there's been no heart change. There's been no rebirth. The Holy Spirit is not there. And you see these Confessions of faith that are manipulated out of people and people do good for a little while and then they leave and the last state of that man is worse than the first. It's how crucial the Holy Spirit is. How crucial rebirth is. Regeneration. Jesus said... My Heavenly Father, how much more would He like to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And we're not talking in some Pentecostal way. Well, you get saved first, then a little later down the road, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit, the second blessing. No, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, authentically, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and dwells in your heart and regenerates, makes you alive in Christ, and you're a new creature now, and old things begin to pass away, and new things come. You are a new creation. And that only happens through the Holy Spirit. These were men who were saying, we're Abraham's sons. We're from the seed of Abraham. That's the wrong seed. You need the seed that's the Holy Spirit. Interesting to me that in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God says that by the seed of the woman, which isn't normally who has the seed, right? Without me getting too graphic? That's the egg. How could you say the seed of the woman? How was Jesus conceived as a human being? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's the Son of God. How do we become children of God? We need to be conceived not by the seed of man, The seed of man got us into sin. We need to be conceived by the seed of the Holy Spirit. Not through traditionalism or legalism or any other ism. Through faith in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Until you are born again of the Spirit... You are still under satanic influence. Well, I'm not demon-possessed. I didn't say you were demon-possessed. Some people are. I believe that it happened more prolifically while Jesus was on earth. Still happens today. But those who deny the power of the Holy Spirit that teaches us to submit to the Word of God are under satanic influence. Like, I'm not a Satan worshiper. I'm not under satanic... Look, what was Satan's whole goal? Was to get people to not submit to God, but to submit to themselves. As long as you're Lord of your own life, you're under satanic influence. That's his plan. 
Don't listen to God. Listen to yourself. You won't die if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll have your eyes opened and you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. Your evaluation of the world will be the correct one. You can walk around and judge people. Your life's your own. Your thoughts are your own. Your ideas are your own. They're yours. And we can all be right simultaneously until your idea clashes with mine and then you're dead wrong. And that is satanic. But you are the children of God and you've been taught to be suspicious of your sin nature. And when you hear that voice creeping up in your heart that says, I'm right, you need to be on guard. You need to say, God's right. And I sure hope I'm seeing the way things, God's seeing them. Because if I am, then I'm right. But only because God's right. And even if I am right, God was right with compassion and with love and he was winsome and he was filled with grace and mercy. Except to those who didn't think they needed grace and mercy. They needed rebuke and rebuke they got. This little part of the story ends in a very curious way. And I put point number six in absolute evaluation. Absolute. It's final. It's a little shocking because this woman cries out from the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. It's intended to be a compliment. A common Jewish blessing. You see, a child, especially a young man, that is the kind of young man or child that all of us would want to raise because that would say, speak volumes about me as a parent, right? Every mother's dream to have a son like this who speaks with authority and with wisdom. And here's this mom and we see what's in her heart. Wow, I wish I had a son like that. I'd be blessed because people would say good things about me. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus says, on the contrary, where does blessing come from? Who decides what blessing looks like? Who decides who is blessed? Who decides how you're blessed? Who decides what blessing looks like? This woman has decided in her heart And the culture has informed her what blessing looks like. I would really be a blessed woman if I had a son like that. I hope her son's not standing next to her. (laughs) That's what I was thinking when I read this. There's probably some son going. On the contrary, I'll decide who's blessed. 
I'll be determining what blessing is. I'll tell you how you can be blessed. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Submit to it. Place yourself under it. Agree with it. Not agree with it because you decided, yeah, it's right. Because now you're placing yourself over it. Yeah, it's right. I'll agree with that. It's, it's acknowledging what is already right and placing yourself under it. That's who's blessed. When you have an encounter face-to-face with God and you say, He's God. I'm not. He's right. I'm wrong. He's righteous. I'm not. He's holy. I'd like to be. He's all-wise. I'm a great fool. These are not things we naturally say. And when we hear people say that from a pure heart, you know the Holy Spirit's involved. A natural man's not going to utter those words with a pure heart. So we can get in theological wranglings over which happens first. Did... did did I submit and then the Holy Spirit came into me and, and then he taught me to submit the rest of the way or did he come in first and teach me to submit so that, folks, things are happening in the spiritual realm that we don't fully understand. What's our job? Be humble. That's what Jesus is looking for here. It's the point of the sermon. Be humble. You're not God. He's right. Whatever he's revealed to us in his word is correct. It's truth. It's, it will always be truth. And your interpretation of the truth might be wrong. Your interpretation of the truth may be wrong. You need to be suspicious of yourself, not the word of God. So if you don't know the Lord, it's because you haven't submitted To his lordship. You haven't acknowledged that he is Lord. He's good. And he's ready to forgive. He is ready to welcome you into his family. He's made it easy for you by doing all the hard work on the cross. He's made it easy for us by doing all the hard work and offers us the reward. As a free gift. Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father because we're horrible at it. These folks thought they were great at obeying God. They didn't recognize how poorly they obeyed God. Reminds me of that movie, Patch Adams. He's talking to the psychiatrist. And they're about to release him from the hospital. And he says, what are you going to do with your life? You need purpose. And he says, I, I want to help people. I want to heal them. And the psychiatrist said, well, that's what I do. And he says, well, you stink at it. <laughs> you know, We're God's shepherds. We shepherd the people of Israel. Who's this guy coming and saying he's the shepherd of Israel? You know, Jesus telling them, yeah, but you guys stink at it. You're leading people far away from my Father. And you think you're leading them close. 
you travel over land and sea to make a convert and you end up making them twice the son of hell as they were before. Teach the the moralist is farther away from coming to God because to get close to God you have to admit that I can't get to Him on my own. And the legalist and the moralist says if you just clean up your act enough God will have to let you in. That's the opposite of the gospel. And so we sang, come just as I am this morning. Just as I am. You come to God and He accepts you just as you are with a humble heart. And then He doesn't leave you just as I am. He turns you into just as He is. Turns you into the image of His Son. So I have some homework for you then. (laughs) Last slide. Where do you currently sit in judgment over Jesus? And I didn't say, do you think you're currently sitting in judgment over Jesus? We all have this problem. Part of being in the body of Christ, knowing I'm forgiven, it gives me the freedom to know God will still love me even as I admit I have this ongoing problem. If while you were still sinners, Christ died for us, then we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so we can be honest about this ugly problem we have that we sit in judgment over Jesus. So, are you aware that this is the root of all sin and the reason you need a Savior? Are you aware that your sin nature wants to have the final word over God's word. Run into this often. We read God's word together and we agree as a body of Christ that this is the word of God and it's true. It's when somebody comes in and says, in my interpretation is the word of God. Whoa. Let's come together as Christians and say, come let us reason together with the word of God over both of us. You always have to say when you have a disagreement with someone, we could both be wrong. That's the starting point. But if we disagree, we both can't be right, but we could both be wrong. And if one of the parties can't agree on that, you've got a problem. Maybe we both have the wrong interpretation. So let's get back in prayer and humble ourselves before God and ask Him for wisdom. God loves to give wisdom through the Holy Spirit. Do you have a healthy suspicion of your own ideas and your own goodness? Do you have a healthy suspicion of your own ideas and your own goodness? Wait, maybe I don't have the right view of what's going on in this situation. Maybe I don't have all the facts. Maybe I do have all the facts that I'm still being a jerk. (laughs) Well, that never happens. Maybe I'm right, but I'm not wanting to be helpful. I just want to be right.
the Holy Spirit will help you with this. This does not come naturally. This is not what comes natural is to wake up each morning and say, I'm right. The way I view the world is the way it is. I've got an agenda. If they would just let me be in charge of everything, we could, we could fix this planet. And people have been saying that for thousands of years, and they've all had their turn at it, and the planet's still a mess. And people come along and say, yeah, but, it, but I haven't had a chance yet. <laughs> Instead of saying, huh, maybe there's a pattern here. Maybe only God is big enough to solve the world's problems. And the first and foremost problem I have is, wait a minute, I need God to tell me what my biggest problem is. See, you got to catch yourself. Oh, I know what my biggest problem is. No, God knows what your biggest problem is. Ask him and he'll tell you. And your biggest problem is that you think you know what your biggest problem is and you won't ask him. See, that's the problem. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem is pride. Humility is the answer. Coming to God in humility and saying, forgive me, love me, take me into your family, fill me with the Holy Spirit, Make me like Jesus. That's the solution to my problems. Do you know that like all people, you and I are guilty of judging God? This is our biggest problem. Let's pray. Father, we can only call you that because Jesus has saved us. The Holy Spirit lives in us and has adopted us as sons of God. We come to you weak like children, dependent on you for everything, for all knowledge, for all wisdom, for all strength, for knowing how to interpret our world correctly and knowing how to interpret our own heart correctly. Forgive us for playing God. Forgive us for listening to Satan, that old serpent, that old liar. When will we finally learn that he only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and you come to bring life? Convince us of this, Lord. Not because your argument are inadequate. We're inadequate because of our pride. Break through our stubborn hearts. Fill us with love and truth and light. For your glory and our good. Amen. Amen.